Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Deborah Amon. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, we bring you writers, poets and thinkers from across the globe, from right here at Europe's largest art centre. In this episode, I'm going to bring you Angie Thomas, author of The Hate You Give and her new novel On The Come Up, from when she was here in the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Thomas joined us to discuss her second novel, On the Come Up, a story of fighting for your dreams even as the odds are stacked against you, of the struggle to become who you are and not who everyone expects you to be, and the desperate realities faced by poor and working class black families. Thomas's latest novel firmly positions her as a writer of compelling novels with audacious characters that offer a prism through which we can view contemporary culture, politics and the black American experience. Thomas was in conversation with award-winning writer, editor and columnist Charlie Brinkhurst-Cuff. Charlie is deputy editor at Gowden, a magazine written and produced exclusively by women and non-binary people of colour, aiming to diversify the journalism landscape. She is also the editor of the book Mother Country, Real Stories of the Windrush Children. I hope you enjoy their conversation here at Southbank Centre. That is a good welcome. Yeah. Now... I was going to do it for the gram because this is my, fir- my last tour stop for this book and I felt like it would have been fitting but the lighting is kind of... I know I can't see anything. So y'all I just make there, noise. But... Oh! Hey! Hey! Oh! We definitely have to do it for Instagram then, okay? So on the count of three, I'm gonna stand up, but on the count of three, I want you guys to say, hey, Instagram, okay? Hold on. (laughs) All right, I'm gonna show the whole room, don't worry. (laughs) One, two, three. What a pleasure to be here with you tonight, and what a great audience! Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant to be here. Ooh. My phone—that was, was my like, phone. Yeah, was like, that was that? you guys on my phone. <laughs> Being All right. right, we love it. Um, so yeah, we've just been backstage. Angie's been eating fish and chips, which she says are the best fish and chips she's ever had. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. I forgot the name of the restaurant, but um, they were really good fish and chips. You know, it, it was seasoned. <laughs> She says shocked. <laughs> I don't mean that as shade. I mean, it's okay if you do. Okay, I've had some food here that was not seasoned. <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest with you all. And you know, I thought that I needed to start bringing some of my American, Southern American seasonings with me, but this was seasoned, so. It was really good. That sounds so bad. No, it, it was just I love the... your country. Don't, <laughs> don't kick me out. It was a look on your face when you tried it and you were like, oh, actually, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was, it was. So. <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about fish, <laughs> even though that would be a, a great conversation. Um, but what I did want to talk about to start up, off with was kind of where you're from and your upbringing. Um, I've been Googling facts about Jackson, Mississippi. Did you know that it was the place where the first chimpanzee to human heart transplant took place. Oh, 
Yeah, I did know oh, that. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought I'd catch your story. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I was born in that hospital, so yeah. Oh. It wasn't the same day, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we're starting literally right from the beginning there, but yeah, could you tell us a bit about what your, your life was like as like a kid, as a teenager, actually, because that's, mm -hmm. that's who you write for. Yeah, you know, as a teenager, I was definitely a nerd masquerading as a rapper. Um, Hip-hop was a way to make myself seem cool. So um, when I specifically, I think about middle school, I don't know what you all call it, but like from ages 12 and up, um, that's where I, I wanted to be a rapper starting around age 12. What I did was to make myself seem cool to the older kids in the neighborhood, I would rap other people's songs, songs that they hadn't maybe heard, and I played it off like they were my songs, and everybody thought I was dope. <laughs> but the fact was, I was this shy, nerdy kid who, even though I loved Cash Money Records, I also loved Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just gave you a mashup like no other. Um, but I was, I was, I didn't think my opinions mattered a lot, and I didn't have a whole lot of self-confidence. I was bullied um, a lot, and but I was, I was smart according to my teachers, <laughs> you know, and, and I was that quiet kid who was still trying to figure out, figure out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to tell stories. So that was definitely me, but I hated reading. Oh, really? The, the only thing that I did love to read really was Harry Potter. Same, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, but, and, but and other than that, because so often I did not see myself in books and because I didn't see myself in books, I didn't connect with the books. Like, Harry Potter fooled me because I thought Hermione was black. You were the first person to think that before J.K. Rowling. Before, before they cast a black actress in Cursed Child, Angie was in Mississippi thinking Hermione was black. I mean, she had the unruly hair or whatever. I'm like, that's me on a bad hair day. You know, so when I saw Emma cast in the movie, I'm like, who is this white girl? Um, but, so those were the only books that I connected with, but what I did connect with and the way I saw myself was through hip hop. Mm -hmm. Rappers told the stories that I connected with. Mm -hmm. And I mean, is this the reason why now you so unapologetically write for yourself and for black women? Is it because you didn't have that growing up? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's a huge motivation for me. Thinking about the fact that had I read, I'm just gonna say it, had I read a book like The Hate You Give when I was 12, 13, 14 and up, I just wonder, wow, what would that have meant for me to see myself as a hero of a story? Mm -hmm. To see myself being celebrated in a book, what would that have meant for me at that age? Would that have given me a voice? Would that have given me confidence? Mm -hmm. There's a power in representation. There is true power in it, and you don't realize it if you've always seen yourself. But for those of us, let's say, for instance, Black Panther, I don't think people really understand the impact that has had on so many people. You know what it was like for me? Here I am, an adult, and I walk into a movie theater, and I want to see a movie about black people as heroes and not just villains, but as both. Two, I'm seeing strong, black, intelligent women who are an important part of the story, and they're not just the object of affection or being degraded, they are being celebrated and respected. And then three, 
to have a place like Wakanda, that's, you know, <laughs> like. And you, I mean, you work that love of Black Panther into the latest yes. book as well. Like they do, they do it yeah. a, a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we've referred to Michael Bay Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> we do love Michael. I do. I do. <laughs> Have you met him yet? No, but if I met him and he asked me any question, the answer would be I do. <laughs> <laughs> You have to manifest that. You have to you manifest You have to. Speak those things um. that are not as though they were. <laughs> hmm. You've said that you, you saw yourself in hip hop, but mm -hmm. I'd like to hear more about that. Cause like, what did you see? What did you mm -hmm. see reflected back at you? You know, when I say that some people are surprised because hip hop, let's just be honest, it has a history of degrading black women. Mm -hmm. But what I saw myself in was, I saw myself in the black women who were out there speaking their minds and doing their thing, like TLC. TLC, they were, for the kids who don't know, oh. <laughs> please, please look up TLC. You would not have Cardi B if it were not for TLC. I'm just gonna say that. Because TLC, when they came out in 1992, they were talking about safe sex and they were wearing condoms on their clothing and all of this, but they were owning who they were and they were owning their sexuality. So no, you would not have Cardi if it were not for them. I'm just gonna say that. But seeing them and seeing them be so outspoken about things they believed in, and even though I was four years old repeating songs of theirs that I shouldn't have, um, <laughs> Yeah, I was like at four talking about two inches or a yard. <laughs> exactly. Rock harder if it's sagging. If that went over your head, let it go over your head. <laughs> anyway, um, but no, seeing them and then seeing like Missy Elliott and, and seeing all of these powerful women and seeing them tell their stories authentically, that spoke to me. But then too, I, I saw myself in the songs that like Tupac wrote. When Tupac spoke to black women, he was speaking to me. When he said, I give a holler to my sisters on welfare, Tupac cares if don't nobody else care. I was not on welfare at the time, but I was one of those kids whose family could have been on welfare, and it still felt like he was speaking to me. So it, it really, really changed my perspective and made me feel seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And going back to what you said about black women, I feel like this book you know, it does a really brilliant job of developing a positive relationship between two female rappers. Was that, was that conscious? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Especially nowadays in an age where society makes it seem as if there can only be one successful woman rapper. You know, that's the whole thing with Nicki and Cardi. There's an industry that's making it seem as if only one of them can be at the top. Only one of them can be successful, but nobody is making the guys feel like that. You know, the guys aren't throwing shoes at each other. You know, so, so I really wanted to show. And then there's too this, this belief that women can't get along. That we, that we compete with one another and that we, we set that up amongst ourselves and I wanted to show that's not always true. We can get along. So that's why Brie can develop a friendship with another young woman rapper and I, she doesn't see her as a threat. She sees her as inspiration. Mm -hmm. 
That's a big difference. I don't see anyone else as a threat. Even in, here I am as a black woman author in children's literature. My counterparts are not threats. They're my inspiration. They're my motivation. We're all doing this and we're doing it for a greater good. So why not support and celebrate one another? Absolutely. You recently said in an interview as well that hip-hop was built off women and then it degraded it. Um, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about mm -hmm. what you meant by that? If you wanted to look at it literally, as you all say, um, as far as... <laughs> Is that British That's how you say We say literally. Oh, right. You okay. all say literally. <laughs> I love it. But um, if you look at it, and, and you look at it from a, a literal perspective, um, hip-hop was first born at a teenage girl's birthday party. When DJ Cool Herc did what he did, it was at his sister's birthday party. So in some ways, if his sister wasn't born, hip hop, you know, I'm kidding. But that's just going too far. But what I mean truly though, is that let's look at Sugar Hill Gang. That was the first hip hop group to come out with a commercial song with Rapper's Delight. Sugar Hill Gang was put together by a woman. That song was produced and written by a woman. Nobody knows that. Nobody talks about that. Then throughout the industry, women have had powerful positions in record labels and in um, the media and all of this and that. Some of the best hip hop journalists to ever exist have been women. They have built this culture in so many ways and yet and still when you look at the music so often they're degraded. It's very rare, it feels like at times, that we are celebrated. And when we are celebrated, we suddenly give that person so many props that you can tell we haven't been getting that a lot. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be rare that we're celebrated. That should be normal. Mm -hmm. That's just fact. So, you know, hip hop and women, women in hip hop, we've done so much for the culture, but the culture does not give us our props nearly enough. Like if I ask you your top five rappers and you can't name one woman rapper, you need to check yourself. Mm. That's just fact. And, and, and you can't say there aren't any out there to choose from, talented women to choose from, like Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill is one of the best rappers. And for the kids who don't know, look her up. But I will advise you against going to one of her shows. You know what, I saw her. I love her, but she may not show up, baby. I mean. <laughs> That's Lauren being Lauren, that's just fact. So if you know her and I just disrespected her to you, I'm sorry, but I'm just stating facts. I saw her, you know, and she actually really impressed me and everyone else was like, she was awful life, but I don't know, it was someone in the area that night. It was in the Caribbean, she felt at home maybe. Okay. I don't know. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I was pleased. Um, but I want to hear a bit more about your rap career. Oh. Short-lived rap career. Yeah. As, as a teenager. Um, do you remember any of your sort of like, Bars from back then. Or? Ooh, I was bad at it. I was a, I was not a great rapper when I was a teenager. Like, no, um, no. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> let's see. I mean, there's one that I remember. And I kind of, um, I gave one of Bree's songs this title. She mentions the title in On the Come Up, and it's actually the title of a song that I came up with when I was like 16. And it was like, I called it Hustle and Grind. I was not out there hustling or grinding, I don't know. <laughs> but it was like, 
It was like my hustle, my grind. I'm all about getting mine. Benjamins, Franklins, I'm talking about dollar signs. I wish somebody would try to stop my dough. I wish somebody would try to stop my flow. And I'm like, what are you gonna do if they do? <laughs> You're not gonna do anything, but that's, yeah. I wasn't gonna do anything. I was not about that life. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask you, did you, were you ever put in that situation mm -hmm. that Brie was where you felt like you had pressure to you know, rap about a life that wasn't really yours? I wasn't directly put into that kind of situation, but that's the environment that hip hop created and I felt like I had to. You know, um, when I wanted to be a rapper, this was back when, I'm making myself sound old, but at the time, everybody who was out rapping, it was street stuff that was what was successful. And I, I don't like his behavior now. Um, you know, I've canceled him as far as, I, as far as I'm concerned, but Kanye West really did change things. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Kanye Kardashian. <laughs> anyway, he really, but no, when he was Kanye West, he really changed things in hip hop because here's this guy who had never lived in the streets, he'd never done any of this, and he never acted like he did either. He was wearing his backpacks, he had an album called College Graduation, and he's talking about, you know, things like being broke and eating at the KFC buffet with his girlfriend and stuff like that, just being a normal person struggling, and no one had given rappers, nobody in rap had done that when I wanted to be a rapper, so I thought I had to come off as somebody I wasn't. So it wasn't necessarily anyone made me feel that way, but those were the images I was used to seeing. So that's why I came up with hustle and grind, knowing I wasn't hustling or grinding. The only thing I was grinding on was trying to figure out how to beat Bowser on Mario 64. <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> um. So a little birdie, I, your publicist told us that you might be up for doing a freestyle for us tonight, which is from, from the book. But I don't know if you're quite ready. We can, we can wait, we can wait. I gotta get the mic, I guess. Yeah, I think it's... it's <laughs> Do you want like a beat? No. Okay, okay. <laughs> So this is like 16-year-old Angie fulfilling her dream of rapping on a stage <laughs> in front of a crowd. Woo! I don't think she knew that it would be at a book event, but... Um, so, in On The Come Up, Brie does what's called battle rapping. For you old people who don't know. <laughs> Joking. Um, but for those who don't know, battle rapping is where two rappers go against each other and they're freestyling. Freestyling is where you literally come up with stuff off the top of your head. And it's tricky and it's hard. And the thing about battle rapping is the goal is to embarrass the other rapper by saying stuff that's pretty clever and it needs to rhyme. So it's hard. I mean, if you can come up with a joke off the top of your head, great, but make that joke rhyme. It's a whole different factor, you know? So, this is from Bree's battle rap at the beginning of the book. Um, she's going up against this very arrogant, very sexist young man by the name of Miles, and this is her battle rap. Okay, I gotta close my eyes, I can't. <laughs> See, this is why I can't be a rapper, because I'd be on stage like this, and at some point I'd fall off. Um, okay. 
My apologies. See, I forgot my manners. I get on the mic because it's my life. You show off for girls and cameras. You a pop star, not a rapper. Vanilla ice or a hammer. Y'all hear this crappy dumping now? Somebody get him a pamper and a crown for thee. The best have heard about me. You can only spell brilliant by first spelling Brie. Now see, naturally, I do my shit with perfection. Better call a bodyguard because you're going to need some protection. And on this here election, the people crown a new leader. You didn't see this coming to your ghostwriters, didn't either. I came here to ether. I'm sorry to do this to you. This is no longer a battle. It's your Funeral, boo. I'm murdering you. On my corner, they call me coroner. I'm warning you. Tell the truth, this dude is boring. Are you confused like a foreigner? I'll explain with ease. You're just a casualty in the reality of the madness of Brie. No fallacies, I spit maladies, causing fatalities, and do it casually damaging rappers without bad jigger managing, managing my own label, my own salary. Actually, factually, there's no MC that's as bad as me. Miles, that's cute, but it don't make me cower. I move at light speed. You stuck at per hour. You spit like a lisp. I spit like a high power. Brie's the future, and you too. Day like Matt Lauer, you coward, but you a G, it ain't convincing to me. You talk about your clothes, about your shopping sprees. You talk about your Glock, about your ICE. But in this battle, they all talking about me, Bree. Well done. Big up, Sanji. <laughs> I mean, I have a theory, which is that this whole book was uh, just to start your, your hip-hop career. <laughs> I think Angie needs a moment. <laughs> um, I'm okay. Good. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> um, so, I mean, would you say that the way that hip-hop is moving now is encouraging? I know there's mm. some artists like modern day artists, contemporary artists that you do respect beyond Kanye West, obviously. Kanye Kardashian, rather. <laughs> um, I'm positive and then I'm also concerned, if that makes sense. Um, I'm positive because I'm seeing a little bit more balance returning. You know, at one point there was no balance. Um, you had a lot of rappers who were just doing the same thing. But nowadays, you have someone like Kendrick Lamar who's carving his own way, J. Cole who's carving his own way, Chance the Rapper who truly really is carving his own way, and then Rhapsody, and then you have Cardi and Nicki out here doing their thing. And someone like Cardi who is owning her past and being outright about it and not shying away from it and telling right-wing idiots to dog that she'll dog walk them, you know. <laughs> um, you, you have that. But then, too, you have um, a lot of kids who are, they see it as a way out, but they're not being guided along the way, and they're already misguided, and it's leading to more misguidance. You have a lot of these young SoundCloud rappers, and I'm just going to be honest, a lot of them start to sound the same, and whether that's me showing my age or not, they just they start to sound the same. And I have nothing against it, but I also... I want them to talk about the consequences as well as be aware of the consequences. Like, I look at 6ix9ine. 6ix9ine never talked about the consequences, and now look at him. He's dealing with the consequences. And I'd much rather they talk about them mm -hmm. than just deal with them eventually. So I, I want more balance, and, and I want more empowerment. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want more of that because I was lucky when I was, you know, when I was a kid and then a teenager, specifically when I was a kid, when I was young, Actually, I was a baby, but still, public enemy gave us power. And then I heard that later on in life, you know, after the fact, and it did something for me. So I want more rappers to empower the next generation so that we can have a generation of leaders who are out here changing the world. Mm.
Just to go back in time a bit, I wanted to talk about where this book came from. Um, and I know that The Hate You Give was actually banned in a few places, and we were just talking before you went on about the fact that was it um, one of the women who called out the ban has been given a, an award, is that right? Yeah, um, and when a police union in South Carolina spoke out against The Hate You Give being on a summer reading list along with a book called All American Boys, um, the school district had a the school district had it on the summer reading list, but the police union thought that the book created anti-police sentiment, right. and they thought that it shouldn't be on the school reading list. And they went to the media, blah blah blah. And this principal, she stood up for both books and fought to keep them on the summer reading list, and went on CNN and all of these different news outlets and spoke up for the books. And so she recently was given an award for intellectual freedom for her work. And that's incredible. And so um, I was reading the article backstage about her getting the award and how they contacted the police union and they had no comment. <laughs> you know, um, but it's, I was inspired by all of that with writing Bree's story and this story of a young black person who says things that make people uncomfortable, but she's telling her truths and she's telling the truths of her community. And instead of people focusing on the problems that she's speaking on, they're focused on the fact that she's speaking on them and how she's speaking on them. And that's what I dealt with, but that's also what so many of my heroes in hip hop dealt with. You may not like the way NWA said what they said, but they were speaking about police brutality and F the police. And they were speaking about a real issue. And that's that's what we see. Hip hop is always criticized for how it says things as opposed to people paying attention to what's being said. And that's what we see that happens with Brie. And I, I thought it was really interesting how you developed the fact within the book that some of the characters were really supportive of what Brie was doing and what she decided to do and how others, who you would presume might have her back, didn't. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that reflects real life with some, you know, some black people thinking that, you know, this isn't the correct way that we should be talking about our issues or so on and so forth? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. We are our biggest critics, and I get why, because there's such a microscope put on us, especially when we speak out that the thing is, it's kind of like this line in on the come up where Bree says, if one of us messes up, suddenly all of us have messed up. So we're real critical of ourselves, and I get it. But the thing about hip hop, and I, I look back at it, and I was doing a lot of research while writing this book and looking at the rappers who were criticized, and a lot of times they were being criticized by older black folks. And there was a lot of times, it was the same ones who were out there during the civil rights movement at the front line, and they're upset because these rappers are using art to talk about it in a quote unquote vulgar way instead of doing marches. But the thing is, each generation has their own way of speaking up and speaking out. So who are you to criticize that? Who are you to be angry that we're angry? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this analogy Tupac had once. He said that, you know, it's like we've been outside of a building, outside of a dining room, locked out of a dining room, and there's this big buffet inside, and they're having this big party and this food all around nonstop, and we're outside, and during the Civil Rights Movement, we were singing, we are hungry, please let us in, and being polite and asking to be let in. By the 90s, we're like knocking on the door ready to shoot, and now, after he's been gone, the anger and the frustration has built up where you have kids, they're not saying we're ready to shoot, they're shooting. Mm. They're busting the doors mm -hmm. down. That anger, you cannot expect me to have my, to ha you cannot expect someone, 
to put their foot on your neck and you continue to just beg for them to let up, eventually you're gonna push them off. Mm. And we see that reflected in the changes in the culture. We see that reflected in the changes in the activism because hip hop in its own way is activism. What is activism? Is making others aware of what's going on, of issues that are happening. And hip hop does that as well. So the criticism, when it does come from older folks, from older black folks especially, they don't get that we're at a place of such anger and frustration that we're not going to be polite. Mm -hmm. We're going to make those other people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a scene in the book actually that I think illustrates that really well, which is, I don't want to get, how much can I give? I don't know. Uh, I don't, <laughs> don't want to give too much away. Um, but basically, Bree's a victim of racial profiling mm -hmm. um, at her school um, and there's two evil security guards <laughs> called Long and Tate who sort of um, uh, racially profile students of black and Latinx uh, mm -hmm. descent. Um, and there's a, they, the security guards get sort of, um, they get dismissed briefly, but they come back to the school. Um, and Bree's like recorded this song which like reflects her experiences. And the song starts being used as like a protest, like as a protest moment. And some people are unsure about it, including her best friend, but the rest of the school are like taking that moment mm -hmm. and using that activism. And it also sort of, obviously this book is set in Garden Heights, which is the same neighborhood as, as where Star and um, Khalil like live as well, or lived rather. Um, I know. Yeah, I'm I know, I know, I know. Yeah. My heart. <laughs> um, yeah, and, uh, and it feels like even though the books aren't linked in, in like a, you know, mm -hmm. it's not a sequel or prequel or anything like that, but it feels like a building on that sort of story and like a, a new vein of activism which comes from the youth. Um, mm -hmm. Again, was that a conscious, conscious decision by you? Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, um, um, when I was starting to write on the come up, you know, I thought about what is it like for a young person to live in Garden Heights, AK, after Khalil? Because I often wonder, what is it like for a young person, young black person, to live in Ferguson after Michael Brown? What's it like to live in Sanford, Florida after Trayvon Martin? What's it like to be a 12-year-old kid in Cleveland, Ohio after Tamir Rice? We talk about things as they're happening, but we rarely talk about these communities and the way it changes everyday life for people after the cameras have left. How does a kid navigate Garden Heights now? And how do they deal with things? How do they make themselves heard? How do they express themselves? Well, Bree is living in a post-Khalil world and it has really shaped her view and changed things for her and changed her community. But it's also made her speak louder. And in a lot of ways, it's made her um, more determined. And for her peers as well, they recognize injustice even quicker now. They recognize racial profiling even quicker now. They recognize that there is a system set in place that is not built for them but against them even quicker now. So when this moment happens, for them it's a way of taking that power back. They recognize that their neighborhood has been left powerless by some, or some would see it as powerless after what happened with Khalil and the hate you give, they felt powerless. But hip hop and Bree's song is a way for them to take that power back. So for me, it was important for them to have that moment and have a moment in which hip hop gave them that because that's what it's done for so many of us. Mm -hmm. And you've also mentioned that um, Bree and Star are almost, almost like polar opposites. Mm -hmm. um, why did you want to sort of, yeah, create Bree's character? Like, why did you want to make her so different from Star? Well, I wanted to show people that two black girls can be in the same neighborhood and be completely different. Um, <laughs> 
It's possible. <laughs> it's I know, shocking, right? Um, they don't even know each other. Oh my God. Like, no, not all black people know each other. You know, there, there's, there's sometimes these assumptions that we do. We, we, don't, we don't always know each other, but we kind of know each other. You know, there's that kindred connection that we may have, but I didn't know you until today. Exactly, but we're good. <laughs> but you know, no, Star and Bree, they don't even know each other and they live in the same neighborhood, but I wanted to show that they can have different lives, completely different lives different personalities, they can process things differently because we are not all the same. Yeah, there are plenty of girls out there who connect with Star, and there are also plenty of girls out there who connect with Brie, I've already heard from them. And, and to know that I'm showing them themselves, but to also know that there are so many layers to them, there are so many different ways in which their lives look, and, 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 and they are not all the same, maybe, just maybe, we can get away from this idea that every black experience is the black experience. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the significant ways in which their lives differ, actually, which I wanted to come to next, was talk, uh, talking about the way in which the book tackles poverty. One of the thing that is, things that is pushing Brie so hard to want to succeed in her hip-hop career is the fact that she wants to make it for her family. She's like very family-oriented. She loves her mum, even though she calls her Jay, and she mm -hmm. loves her brother. I know this related a bit to your, your upbringing. Could you tell mm -hmm. us a bit about that? Well, I will point this out because my mom is here and I always have to point this out. In the book, Brianna's mom was once on drugs. My mother was never on drugs. <laughs> I repeat, my mother was never on drugs. Okay. Um, but when I was a kid and then a teenager, we did experience financial hardship. So there were times where we had to get food from food banks. There were times where um, we had to ask relatives for money so that we could keep our lights on or keep the water or the gas on. So I definitely knew about that. And, and when I wanted to be a rapper, it was mainly because that seemed like a way out. That seemed like a way to save my family and get us in a better financial situation. So I definitely understood that. And I think for a lot of kids who are living in poverty, they feel powerless. And, and I think people who live in poverty often feel powerless. Sometimes it feels as if your life is one big crisis after another and you don't know which direction it's going to come from sometimes. Mm -hmm. One thing can change your entire year. Forget a day, one thing can change your entire year out of nowhere. Poverty is not, poverty does not equal stability. Mm -hmm. You know, you lack stability when you're in poverty and that's a hard thing for anybody to deal with, but it's especially hard for a kid. And I remember for me, I wanted the power to change that. You know, I wanted to be able to change my family's situation and that's exactly what we see with Brie. She makes sometimes bad decisions but she's doing it from a place of love and determination, mm -hmm. a place of love for her mom and her brother and seeing them go through what they go through and saying, I want to be the superhero of their lives, even if that makes me the villain of somebody else's narrative. For sure. And I think, yeah, one of the most powerful subplots for me actually was Trey's story and the fact that he worked really hard. He like was like a gold star, like um, it was a drum player, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Drum major, yeah. <laughs> and he studies psychology, is that right? At yeah, university? he has a psychology degree and he's yeah. always trying to diagnose his little sister. Yeah, which I, I, I love that. I was like, yeah. He gets on her nerves. <laughs> 
Um, but he works really hard because he, you know, I'm, I'm presuming similarly to Brie, he wants to help his family. But he, during the period of the book, he's working at pizza shop and he's back home because that's the only way he feels like he can support them. And I mean, w what were you trying to tell the audience about the way in which your upbringing can affect your chances in life with that? The thing is, even when you're given given equal an equal number of opportunities, if you lack equity, it means nothing. And, and what I mean by equity is all of the building blocks to help you catch up to everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this great graphic that I once saw on the internet to explain equity versus equality. And equality is where every, of these three kids who were trying to look over a fence. They were all given the same size stool to look over the fence, but all of them were different heights, so the stool size didn't matter. If they were short, it still didn't help them see over the fence. If they were tall, it helped them see even further, and if they were average height, it really didn't do much. Equity is when the short kid is given enough so that they can see over. The tall kid is given enough so that they can see over. The average size kid is given enough so they can see over. We lack equity a lot of times. We still lack equality, but we also lack equity, and that's Trey's issue. Trey has been given great opportunities. He got an education, but he also can't afford to pay the student loans that came with that education. I don't know if y'all struggle with that here, but... In America is bad. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's worse in America for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and he he has he he you know he wants to save his family in his own way, but it's a struggle. He has to work twice as hard to get half as far, you know, and 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 that's just that's the reality. I and the thing is too, him being a black male and just being black adds to that because the numbers show that. Um, black students with university degrees still um, lack in employment compared to their white counterparts. We aren't getting the jobs nearly as quickly and we definitely aren't getting the best paid jobs. You know, I have a lot of friends who they went to what's called historically black colleges and universities. I know people who went to them and for a while they had to work at pizza shops or coffee shops, this sort of thing. So mm -hmm. Trey, unfortunately, is in a situation that so many young black people are mm -hmm. in where he's done everything right and it still isn't paying off like it should. Yeah. And that's the struggle for so many of us. Uh, yeah, and that definitely applies to the UK context. As in, we also have our similar issues with employment figures for black people after we finish and also dropout rates are really mm -hmm. high with, amongst the black community. Do you think that, that poor black people are dehumanized in, in the West? I think poor people, period, are dehumanized, but definitely poor black people. You know, we get written off as welfare queens and lazy and this mm -hmm. and that quickly before we're ever looked at as being human human beings, you know. Poverty is, poverty is rarely humanized, you know. We look at numbers, mm -hmm. we don't look at people. We look at the issues, we don't look at people. You know, um, I was, I've forgotten where I was, but I was here in the UK the other day, and there was a homeless gentleman on the street, and he asked, you know, he's asking for change, change, and this really cocky guy, he's like, oh, don't you just get a job, you bum. And I'm like, you don't know his situation. Back the heck up. You don't know his story. How do you know what he has gone through and what put him in that position? That's what we do, though. We make assumptions without looking at the people. And with mm -hmm. this book, I wanted to look at the people because I know, and I'm being a Christian right now, if it weren't for the grace of God, I could have been on the streets. You know, for many of us, we're one missed paycheck from being that bum on the street. So how dare we criticize or jump to judgment and not take a second to think, huh, 
Who knows? That could be me one day. It could still be me one day. God forbid, but that could be any of us one day. Why can't we start looking at people and not just making assumptions about circumstances? And that's really what this book is about. How has it been for you, you know, getting your come up? Ooh. <laughs> Um, it's, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about it earlier, you know, I'm flying home first class tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, no. Andrew is like, see me with the champagne. Just yeah, no, <laughs> shout out to my publisher for that yeah. one. But you know, um, and my mom is flying first class too. I didn't leave her in coach, you know. <laughs> but, but. I never, I never, first of all, I never would have guessed that I would have traveled over to another country like this, and definitely not like in first class. It's always funny because we were talking about it earlier. There are certain people, when they see people like you and I sitting in first class, they give us these looks as if, what are you doing here? Double take. Like, you know you're in the wrong place. And it's this arrogant look of, huh, let me, let, let me talk to the manager to tell them that this colored person is not where they're supposed to be. And you're going to get yourself embarrassed if you ever do that to me. Mm -hmm. But um, I've had it happen, basically. You know, but and it's, there's nothing better than sipping your champagne and looking at them like, take your butt to back. I'm where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> But, I, but no, but still, there's been that, that, that struggle of almost being made to feel as if the change in my life um, was, is not supposed to have happened. Mm -hmm. Like someone like me is not supposed to live in the kind of neighborhood where I live. Mm -hmm. Someone like me is not supposed to be in the position I'm in. And, and, and what kind of message does that send the kids coming up behind me? Mm -hmm. I want them to look at me and see what they can do. You know, for somebody like me, my family was once on welfare at one point. You know, I said it, we ate from food banks, all of this and that, I'm not gonna cry. And now, I'm comfortable, I'm okay. I don't worry about that stuff. I brought my mom on a tour with me, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and I'm taking her on a vacation in May, and, and we've been all over the world. She's seen places that she wanted to see. I've done things. I'm able to buy a pair of Jordans whenever I want. <laughs> Even though I'm, my accountant is like, stop it. I'm able to do it. But still, and so to be in this position, I, I'm thankful and I'm blessed, mm -hmm. but there's also stress with it, and there's, mm -hmm. there's the trauma that comes with poverty. Yeah. You're always still afraid that one thing can change mm -hmm. everything, but if nothing else, I, it makes me more grateful for the position I'm in, and I hope that by being in this position, I can inspire other young people so that they can get their come-ups, mm -hmm. whatever that may be. So. Um, earlier, I think today or yesterday as well, I actually saw you tweeting a bit about imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. which I guess is the more internal side of what we're just discussing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm shocked that you, that you still, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you I suffer like, from it still, you know. Um, I tweeted earlier, um, there's this little joke on Twitter where people say if they were on Ellen, this is how she would surprise them, and it's always <laughs> with bad stuff. It's like this one guy said he was on Ellen, and she was like, I heard you have abandonment issues. And he was like, yeah, and then Ellen walked off the stage and he's like, oh, Ellen, you did it. So, so my version of that is, if I'm on Ellen, she would say, so I heard you deal with imposter syndrome. 
And I'm like, yeah. And she would say, I'm here to tell you you're not a real writer. And I'd be like, oh, Ellen, you did it. <laughs> oh, my God. You know. But no, I do. I do. And, and I hate that I do because there's always this, this cloud of if you write for a certain demographic or with a certain demographic in mind, that makes you less than. Mm. You know, it's, it's not highbrow. Mm-hmm. It's not this and that. And if you're not highbrow, you're not telling true stories. You're not a real writer. But, you know, that's just something I struggle with internally. And I think all writers, we deal with it to some extent. And if you don't deal with it, you are an arrogant prick. <laughs> <laughs> but you think very highly of yourself if you don't doubt yourself at some point. But, you know, I, you know, I think, too, for me, I'm always, I always have this, you know, when I get, when the books get awards and recognition, I'm like... Are they kidding me right now? Like when the movie happened, I, I, I did not, I thought it was a big practical joke until I was sitting in a theater watching oh it. Yeah, yeah. I visited set, I was on set for six weeks and I'm like, so Ashton Kutcher is somewhere filming this for the comeback of Punked, right? <laughs> and he's like, I got you, you know. So you, it's still, I still have those moments where it hasn't mm-hmm. sunk in and I wanna stay that way though. Mm-hmm. I don't want this to ever sink in. You want to stay humble, I guess. I do. I do. I want to stay surprised. I I want to stay um, on my toes. I don't want it to sink in because I feel like the moment it all starts to sink in, then it may go to my head. Mm. And that's when my mama got to smack me. (laughs) But no, I want to keep thinking that Mm -hmm. this is just all a dream. I do. I do. I like that energy. I want to bring it back to the book and talk a bit about love. Um, yeah, because <laughs> the thing that I liked about both of your, your books as someone who loves a good love story is that they have, they have those stories. They give the characters license to sort of be desirable, to be desired, and also to have healthy relationships with, with young boys. And then in this book as well, you have LGBT relationships too. Um, do you love a love story? Like, why, why, do, you, why do you include that element in your, in your book? Um, I do, I do. And, and I'm one of those people who believes that love can conquer just about anything. Oh, I know. But, um, <laughs> you know, with The Hate You Give with Star and Chris, that was a big thing for me because I wanted to show these two kids from these two very different walks of life um, who somehow still, by the end, have love for one another. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they recognize their differences. Chris is not colorblind by the end. You know, he has to, if he really truly loves this girl, he has to see her as a young black woman and know what that means for her navigating the world. I'm a firm believer, just say no to colorblindness. Mm-hmm. No, seriously, just say no to colorblindness. There's nothing wrong with looking at me and seeing that I'm black. The problems occur when you use that to decide that I'm either in, I'm inferior to you and you're superior to me, you know. In fact, I need you to see color because when you don't see color, that means you do not see the things that affect me as a person of color. And by not seeing them, you're ignoring them. And by ignoring them, you're allowing them to continue to happen. So, no color blindness. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, so with those two, I wanted to show love um, still finding a way in the midst of all of this. With Bree's story, and I don't want to spoil it, but with Bree's story, I wanted to explore what does it mean when love changes? Mm. What does it mean when people change? What does it mean when you have feelings for someone, but you start to wonder if that's the someone? Mm -hmm. 
And what does it mean when you start seeing people in a new light and, and start realizing who they really are as you're also realizing who you are? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I will never say I write the, you know, the sappy love stories. I love reading them. You know, there are some, some YA authors who do a wonderful job with it. Like, I'm a huge fan of Nicola Yoon. Mm -hmm. Huge. I love her. But I could never write those beautiful love stories like she does. You know, honestly, I sometimes forget to throw them in my books. So like, I'll be like, oh yeah, I gotta write that. But I don't have to is what I'm starting to remember too. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, and I wanna say this specifically to my teenage attendees. You don't have to be in a relationship. You don't have to find the one. Especially not now, okay? You don't have to do any of that. Especially not now. I don't care what people make you feel like, you do not have to be in a relationship. You do not have to have love or whatever for somebody else right now. The main person you need to love is yourself. That's it, okay? So, so you know, eventually I'm gonna write a book where there's no relationship at all. Nice. Just to normalize that, um, you know, not my third book, third book is already messy, but <laughs> whew, but going at some point, I'm going to write one where there's not. And maybe I'll just focus on friendship mm -hmm. because more kids need to know that's just as normal as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, does your story still feel like your own? Because I, I see that you pour bits of yourself into, into your book, but you also do a lot of speaking appearances and you've done a lot of interviews, but do you still feel, yeah, whole? Um, I do. I do. And... And, and the reason I do is because I, I know who I am. Um, and as a Christian, I know whose I am. Thank you, God. Um, but I also, um, I, I, know how, I know how to define myself and I know how to protect myself. I think that's important for artists. You know, even when we put parts of our own experiences into our stories, we still have to protect ourselves um, and, and not let people take that away from us in a sense. You know, it's always interesting some of the reactions I get with the hate you give, especially, like I was at a library conference once, a conference for librarians, and um, you didn't know, but um, this one librarian came up to me and she was crying, and you know, I get criers a lot. I do, it's okay. Um, but she was like, I am so sorry you went through all of that. And you know, I just had a situation where it was hard for me to get into the conference, and I'm like, it's okay, I got in. She's like, no, I'm so sorry about Khalil and that that happened and that you went through that. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she's like, that's your life story, isn't it? Oh. I said, no. <laughs> and she was like, oh. And the tears stopped so quick. I'm like, okay, I need to get you an Oscar. Anyway, um, but, but what I've come to learn is that you know, people have taken such a personal interest in the story that it makes them feel as if they know me, mm -hmm. as if I'm telling my story, but I know me, and it's not to say you guys don't know me, but there's so much more to me than these books, mm -hmm. and I know that, and that's what helps me get through all of this. That's what helps me stay whole, is knowing that Angie Thomas is more than just an author. Angie Thomas is more than just the hate you give or on the come up or any of that stuff. I know who I am 
and that makes a huge difference. Yeah. So and it, yeah, is that the same in terms of how you deal with criticism of your work as well? Mm -hmm. Is that what you sort of use to interpret? I don't read the criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm just gonna be honest. I don't read reviews at all, even when they're glowing reviews. Yeah. Um, you know, on the come up has so far gotten seven starred reviews from literary journals. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's just almost just as many as the hate you give. The hate you give had eight. We're waiting to see if we get that eighth one. But I haven't read any of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't read any of them with the hate you give because the thing is reviews are not for writers they're for readers mm -hmm. you know what that person writes in the review about what I did in the book it's not going to make me go change it the book is out <laughs> you know it's not going to change the way I write it's not going to change the way I edit the story the main person who's the main criticisms I care about are from my editor editors my agent and my mama mm -hmm. that's it I don't read reviews, so I protect myself in that sense. And I think it's important that authors and artists protect themselves. And as long as you focus on why you do it, and I hope you're doing it for yourself, the other stuff is just noise. Mm -hmm. And then just to round it up, mm -hmm. um, why do you think young black people should keep fighting for their dreams? It's a big question. I think young black people should keep fighting for their dreams because it's one of the biggest forms of resistance we have. It's the biggest, one of the biggest ways we can fight back. And I say this because we were not expected to get nearly as far as we have. And I, I'm definitely not just, and I'm, I'm thinking about young black people, especially in America, but here too. You were not expected to get as far. You were not expected to make noise or be visible. You were not expected to be heard. So why not throw them for a loop and dream and dream big and go for it and make it happen? You know, we are very determined but we also, we have dreams and aspirations and I feel like those dreams are worth dreaming. And we have to know our value. And when we know our value, we know that our dreams are worth having because we're worth it. We're worth it if we go after them. So we have to do it and we have to continue to break barriers, break stereotypes, change, change minds, change perspectives. But more importantly than that, forget changing everybody else's perspective. Let's just change us and the way we navigate this world and the way we present ourselves to this world and let them know we are not stereotypes. We are kings and queens and we are here to stay. <laughs> So I think now we're going to open it up to the floor. Right. If people want to ask questions, there's two mics on either side, just up there. Shall I just point? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go first? Okay, um, so as a 14-year-old girl who goes to a main white, white school, I can totally relate to staff because I have two different personalities everywhere I go. So when I'm in my family in a black, mainly black people room, I feel like I can be myself, but then when I go to a white, mainly white school, I feel like I have to confirm to what they need me to be. Um, but I had a question on the hate you give. Um, what inspired you um, to write that book? Mm -hmm. um, I was inspired to write that book because I was a lot like you, but for me it was in university. I lived in a mostly black, poor neighborhood and I attended a mostly white upper-class private school. And I often found myself being two different people in two very different worlds. Um, I remember my first day on campus, they had a party to welcome um, us freshmen to the school. Now when you tell me party, I think you're gonna have Beyonce, you know, um, some hip-hop music, stuff like that. I get there, they got Sweet Home Alabama playing. <laughs> 
I quickly realized this is an entirely different world. So I changed who I was. And so I would basically leave my house listening to Tupac. And by the time I got to my school, I was playing the Jonas Brothers. Don't judge me. <laughs> I am so happy they're back together. <laughs> Don't judge me, but I'm so happy. Um, I will be front row on that tour. Anyway, um, but while I was in school, there was a young man by the name of Oscar Grant who lost his life in Oakland, California. I did not know Oscar personally, but I took his death very personally. He was killed by police officers, and video shows that Oscar was lying flat on his stomach with his hands behind his back, unable to move, but for whatever reason, the police officer shot him in the back, and he was not charged. That led to riots and protests in Oakland, and it also led to conversations in my neighborhood and at my school. In my neighborhood, Oscar was one of us. We knew guys just like him, and we took his death personally. But at my school, some of my classmates were like, well, maybe he deserved it. He was an ex-con. Why are people so upset? I heard he was once a drug dealer. He was probably going to end up dead anyway. I was so angry and hurt and frustrated that I felt like I should either burn down that entire school campus or do something a bit more productive. I didn't burn down the campus. In fact, they love me now. Um, I mean, I'm, the, I'm like one of the most known alumni, alumni from the school, me and this lady named Rachel Dolezal. No. I know, yo. Yeah, you, and for those who don't know, Rachel Dolezal, is this white woman who for years has tried to portray herself as being black. I know, she, I didn't go to school with her, but we went to the same, yeah. So they'd much rather claim me than her. Um, so I decided though, while I was there, I decided to write to do something productive with my emotions. So I wrote a short story about a boy named Khalil, who was a lot like Oscar, and a girl named Star, who lived in two worlds like me, and that's how the Hate You Give was born. I later decided to turn it into a novel after being so angry and frustrated and hurt when I saw people blame Trayvon Martin for his own death, when I saw people call Michael Brown a thug before they ever called him a victim, when I saw politicians try to explain why it was okay that a 12-year-old child playing with a toy was gunned down in the middle of the day. When I heard kids in my neighborhood say, well, when they're calling Trayvon a thug, they're calling me a thug. So it took me a couple of years to decide to write that story for them. But it came from a place of anger, hurt, and frustration, but also a place of hope, and hopefully a way to celebrate us when the world doesn't do it for us. What advice would you give your younger self because you said that you kind of struggled, so, yeah. I would tell my younger self to not be as fearful. Um, for many of us, we let fear determine so many aspects of our life. And then we also let the opinions of others determine so many aspects of our life. And fear and, and that, that fear of what other people think, that's all connected. So I would tell myself, stop worrying about 
what other people think. I would tell myself what other people think of you is not your business. I would tell myself, don't be afraid to go after your dreams. Don't be afraid to simply speak up for yourself. Don't be afraid to look people in the eye. Know who you are and decide that you're going to define yourself and not let fear do it for you. Had I not been afraid so much, I probably would have written The Hate You Give sooner. Had I not been afraid so much, I, I probably would have pursued just publishing and writing and started writing sooner. Because I, I took forever to decide that I wanted to pursue writing because I was afraid that people would say I wasn't good at it. And had I let that fear determine my life, I wouldn't be right here right now. So let fear go. Fear does not lead to anything positive. It does not. Fear does not, and you have to let it go and decide that your dreams are worth fighting for. So I would tell 16-year-old Angie, your dreams are worth it. Don't let fear tell you otherwise. Self-help from Angie Thomas. No, I hear my mom over here. Every time I speak, my mom is like, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry to say here. Um, as someone who doesn't find um, books to read that often, I found your books were really <laughs> drawed me in and helped me read a lot. Do you think that people understand the idea you were trying to portray in the song on the come up? You know, that's a great question. I hope so. You know, um, I, I hope so. It's always, it's going to be interesting to me to see if people see the song as I intended it or if they see the song the way that Breeze naysayers see the song. You know, there's, there's I'm not going to spoil it, but the song, um, the, the title comes from Breeze's song. And, and there's this whole idea of the song with the song that she did it because this is what people expect from her. But she's not saying that this is who she is. She's saying this is what she expects from her. And I really want my readers to think about that for a second and, say, and think for a second and say to themselves, what does that say about us as a society that this is the image we expect from a young black person who raps? That this is the image we expect, that this is what we expect out of them? What does it say about us and what role do we play in the music that's being put out there? What role do we play in the young artists who are coming up and who are seeing this and who are seeing what, is, what looks like success because we're buying those songs, we're playing those songs, we're buying into that image of a gangster rapper, we're promoting that by purchasing that music, by supporting those artists, and we're therefore creating more of the same thing. So I hope that readers look at the song and think about it for a second, but think also for a second, what does it say about me and the way I interpret this song? So I'm excited to see the reactions. Thank you. We have two questions. So the first question is, aside from reading, what do you do in your spare time? Mm -hmm. I play video games. <laughs> I do, I do. No, I, I think that one of the best forms of self-care is allow, allowing the childlike part of you to have some joy. I do. I think that's one of the, one of the best forms of self-care, getting back to those moments of just pure joy. You know, I will sometimes, I'll go to a trampoline park. You know, I'll, I may be sore by the end, but I'll go. <laughs> You know, or go to the amusement park like me and um, two of my um, two of my friends. I feel like I'm name dropping, but like me and this author named Adam Silvera, 
and another author named Becky Albertalli. Becky did Simon Versus, which became Love, Simon. Um, we all went to Disney World and Harry Potter World together in Orlando. And we were like kids, like we were pushing kids out of the way to get to the front of the line. Because <laughs> we, we allowed ourselves to have those moments of childlike joy and I think that's important. But yeah, I play video games a lot. Um, um, I don't play the scary ones. Like there was this one called um, like the last ones or something like that for place. Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't know it was a zombie game <laughs> until a zombie came jumping out and I threw the controller and I haven't played it since. <laughs> so I stick with games like I play a lot of NBA 2K19. I'm waiting for them to do a WNBA 2K, but until they do, I will continue to break ankles playing as Kyrie Irving. You know, so I, I play a lot of video games and stuff like that, and sometimes I just do nothing. You know what I'm looking forward to when I go home? Lying in my bed and just doing nothing. Maybe looking at my phone or just staring at the ceiling <laughs> and saying nothing to no one. I'm, oh my God, that is gonna be the best. So, but no, I, I do stuff like that, and, 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 and I like to travel for enjoyment as well. So I definitely, I gotta start doing more though, because the past two years have been work, work, work. So come May, I'm going on vacation. Don't call me, don't text me, don't tweet to me. You won't get a response. And what was also, your second question? Also, um, did you enjoy school? And if you did, then what was your favorite um, subject? Ooh, you know, I... I, I did enjoy school at times, but at times I didn't enjoy school because there were times in school where I didn't feel I was being challenged. And so I, um, what I would enjoy about those moments was that I would entertain myself. That's when I started writing stories, was like when I'd finished my schoolwork and everybody else was still doing theirs in class, my teacher allowed me to write stories. My teacher allowed me to be creative, and that was those were the best parts for me. Um, but you know, I, I I did enjoy school at times, though. <laughs> I was homeschooled for high school, so I really enjoyed that. <laughs> but um, but what I did too enjoy were those specifically. I think about those teachers and those classes where I was allowed to be creative. Those were the highlights for me. Those were the ones that stick out, you know. If it was not for my third grade teacher, I probably wouldn't be a writer. She's the one who let me write in my free time. So I know teachers, you guys are under a lot of pressure a lot and you have to follow so many guidelines. But if you are in a position where you can allow your students at least moments to be creative and to do things that unlock that creativity within them, I promise you, it may have a greater impact on them than any exam ever could. Star has very ignorant white friends who she didn't really, I don't know, in the book I didn't feel as though she really addressed their ignorance, but I mean in the movie she picked up the hairbrush, you know, you mm -hmm. know the scene I'm talking about. So what would be your advice for people who are trying to interact or kind of deconstruct white people's ignorance? Know that it's not your job. Okay. It is not your job to teach anyone anything. Period. And never let anyone make you feel, yeah. Here's the thing. The only person whose job it is, is that person. They're the ones that need to change their views. The only thing you need to do is live your life. 
Don't worry about changing them. Some people are not going to change. They want to be stuck in their ignorance. Let them be stuck in their ignorance because it's exhausting to try to change others. Just work on being you, boo, I promise you. That's all you gotta focus on. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about, it. don't let your life become a teachable moment for anyone. Live your life and don't make it your life's work to change others. It is not your job. Because here's the thing too, and I say this and it makes people uncomfortable, but black people, we did not create racism. We did not create these racist systems. So it should not be on us to fix them. And people don't like when I say that, but it's true. There are people who don't like when I say that, but it's true. And so it is not on you to fix them. And protect yourself Take care of yourself. Don't worry about them. All right. What's the best piece of advice you would give to um, an aspiring author? The best piece of advice I would give to an aspiring author is to write for yourself first and foremost. Write the stories that you want to read. Write the books that you would like to walk into a store and pick up. And don't write it because it's a trending topic. Don't write it because it seems like this could be turned into a film. Don't write it because you think it's going to win awards. Write it because you enjoy it, because this, that's why you will enjoy writing it, if it's something you enjoy and something you want to read. And then know that you may get a lot of no's along the way, but it only takes one yes to change everything. I had over 200 rejections for another novel that I worked on, and it never got anywhere. In fact, my literary agent now rejected it twice. <laughs> yes, I remind him of that. <laughs> but I got a lot of no's, but one yes changed everything. And also, a lot of times people tell me, I want to write, but I don't think I have the time, or I don't think I can do it. There's a friend of mine, her name is Julie Murphy. She writes, writes incredible books. One of them is called Dumplin', and she always says, write as if you're getting paid to do it, and eventually, you will hopefully get paid to do it. So you have to d discipline yourself and determine, yeah, there are only 24 hours in the day, but at least if I write something, I will get to the end eventually. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure you keep an eye out because in a week or so, we will have members of Black Girls Book Club on to talk about their perspectives of Thomas's work and how it relates to UK audiences and their experience of meeting Thomas before the event itself. Also, check out Think Aloud, Southbank Centre's other podcast that covers everything from chess playing robots to political comedy. Just search Think Aloud on wherever you listen to your podcasts.